0: Good morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 13, Exodus chapter 13, We remind you that at this moment, of all the moments in your week, God is going to break into your world. And I don't say that because I'm special, but we're about to read and preach faithfully the scripture in a way that God has divinely empowered to break into your world. Now, you can, sh- you can still shut God out at this moment. You can tune me out. You can tune the scripture out. But you'll be tuning God out. So we have an opportunity every week at this time for God to speak to us in a very special way and to insert the truth into our worldview. The rest of the week, we drift around. But right now, at this moment, we can focus on what God says. So listen as God speaks to us. Uh, We're going to read Exodus chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 16. And just some background, Israel has been in Egypt. They've just been liberated. In the last verse of the previous chapter, it says, And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, according to the armies. So now they're on the road, leaving their homes, gathering together on the road out of Egypt. And here we come to our passage. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out this place. No leaven, no leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites. And the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That You shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. Some big questions I'm going to answer here. One, what is Christianity? Everyone in the world is not a Christian, but we are. When you go out into the world, can you answer what is Christianity? What is this thing that we say we are? Or some other big questions. Are we on our own? Are we individuals? Is that it? Or who are we? Or how do we change? Everyone has those questions. Are we on our own? Who are we? How do we change? Christianity is the answer to those questions. And this passage shows us the pattern of God's people three ways. God owns, God delivers, and God calls. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel right here this day. And God is setting up a pattern that will be fulfilled for us. Let's look at the first thing. God's ownership. God owns everything. So He says here in verse, uh, in chapter thirteen, verse two: "Consecrate to Me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast. It is Mine." It's quite a claim, a claim isn't it? Yeah. It's Mine. Yeah. No hesitation, no qualification. Just it's Mine. Yeah. Very bold. Don't we kind of make fun of children when they're just when they say Mine? One of the first words they learn, yeah. Mine. And we realize that that's funny when they're two, but we try to train that out of them. That's sort of mine. But God is saying exactly that. It is mine. God owns Egypt, Israel. Look at verse 15. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Someone in Egypt said, you're not, you don't own us. And God says, yes, I do and I'm going to kill you to prove it. Nothing says ownership like killing someone. Taking everything they have, that's what death is. Ending someone's life takes everything they have or could have. And God says, you're mine. God owns Egypt. God owns Israel. But this does present us a problem. One of the objections to Christianity is that how can you believe in a God who just kills whole groups of people, kills children, Wipes out ethnic groups. Seems to commit genocide. Here's one answer. Christopher Hitchens, late atheist. The Bible may, indeed, does contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, and for indiscriminate massacre. But we're not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human animals. That's one answer to this killing. People say that God in the Old Testament is sort of a petty, bloodthirsty, tribal God. And that can't be true. Therefore, God's not real. So we say, how do we answer that? Because God is killing people here. He's killing a lot of people. And they're not all adults. And he later kills more people. Wipes out whole cities. Men, women, children, all of them. And so the world says to us, that's not a God I want to worship. What's our response? Eve said it, or the serpent said it to Eve. And here's the problem. You don't get to start with questions. See, that's what we don't like. We feel obligated to sort of meet them halfway. Well, God did all this in the, in the, in the Old Testament. That sounds very petty. And we're like, well, let's look at some, let's formulate an argument. Let's look at things. No. That's what Satan said to Eve. Eve said, what about this? What about that? Well, you can just take this. God said this, but he didn't want this. So you meet God halfway and you can be as God. So when you come to these passages where God kills a lot of people and someone says, that sounds like a terrible God, you don't come up with arguments first we follow the Bible. And the first principle in the Bible, in Christianity, is that God made the world. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning, God created the world. John 1.3, everything that was made was made by him. And there was not anything that was made that was not made by him. That comes way before John 3.16. See, we want to start with, well, God loves the world. No, first, God created the world. Before you ask questions about God killing, you have to say God created. You see the starting point for Christianity? It's not God loves us. The starting point is God created. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and all is fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. You see the argument here? Everything belongs to God, including the people that live on this earth. Why? Because God created them. You see how that changes your perspective? So when a skeptic comes to you and says, I don't know if I can believe that, we don't say, well, I understand. We say, God created. And if you reject that statement, you reject everything. When the serpent came to Eve and said, you will not surely die. Eat it and you shall be as gods. Eve should not have argued with him the serpent. Ask questions. Well, what about this? What about... She should have said, God decides, God owns. I'll do what he says. So when God kills these babies here in this passage, what's our first response? They were God's. He says, it is mine. When Pharaoh was stubborn and said, you don't own me, God said, yes, I do. And when the owner takes back what is theirs, There's no problem with that. That's what ownership means. You get to take what's yours. When you own a car, no one complains when you get in the car and drive it away. So when God takes people off this earth, that's his right. And to reject that fact means you can't go any further. There's no more conversation to be had if you reject God as creator. And so the Bible starts with God owns everything. He creates everything and therefore he rules. We don't get to apologize for God's behavior. There's a term called apologetics, which means defending the faith. Unfortunately, we've made that into apologies for God. I'm sorry God is so bad in the Old Testament. No. God is right. Because God owns everything. Because God is creator. And this passage shows that Pharaoh rejected that And God says, I killed him, or I will kill him, I killed the firstborn. Israel accepted it, so they have a future. If we want to be Christians, we first accept that God created the world and God owned the world. And if we're not comfortable with that, that has to be addressed. If you're not comfortable with God owning you, we can't move forward. There's no next step. Because who is God is the real answer, is the real question. Pharaoh asked Moses in previous chapters, he said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And we're asking the same thing. And someone may come across as an honest skeptic, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. But if they've rejected that God is the creator, they're saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I shouldn't have to obey God until he proves to me that he's worthy of me obeying him. Until he proves to me that it wasn't wrong for him to kill those babies, I'm not going to agree with him. That's not the Bible. That's not Christianity. Christianity has a very cold and hard stance. God creates. God owns. And that makes sense of a lot of things in the Bible, doesn't it? Suddenly, God taking what he owns off this earth makes sense. It doesn't seem so arbitrary. But God also has special ownership over a group of people. He owns everyone because he created them. But within all the people, he created a special group of people. Look at verse 3. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. The Lord created you. You see, there was no Israel before. There was just some people who were born and lived and were related to each other. In this act, God says, I'm creating something new, a nation. Therefore, I own that nation. You're mine because I brought you out. You are slaves, and now you're free, and I'm the one who freed you. Therefore, I own you. There's a special ownership. Look in verse 5. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites, which he swore his fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. God gave that to them. Therefore, God owns it. God created these people who could live there. When God creates something, he owns it. God created Israel. He owns them in a special way. God created Christians. So he owns us in a special way. Where did that special ownership come from? It came from his deliverance. Because he saved us, therefore he owns us. That's good news. That sounds harsh and authoritarian, but all of us want to know, are we on our own? Is it just us? Is it just me? Just sort of living out my life by myself? No. The New City Catechism, question one. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Question number one in this catechism. What is our only hope? We're not our own. You see, the world says, I don't want God to own me. I rebel against that, but a Christian welcomes it. We love that God owns us. We're glad that we're not on our own. We're glad that we're not God. Our hope, our only hope in life and death, the only thing we really hold on to is that God does own us. Now we can move forward. Thankful that God has not left us to live our lives under our own authority, but that he has bought us, he's owned us. And how does he do that? See, Christianity says God owns everything because God created everything. But more than that, because we're not Muslims and we're not Jews who also believe that God created everything and that God owns everything. As Christians, we say more than that. God's deliverance. God owns, but God also delivers. That's what he says here. How does he deliver? By power, by his own power. Look in verse three, halfway. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. Look in verse nine at the end. For the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Look at verse 14 at the end. By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Look at verse 16 at the end. For by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. See the pattern? God reached down with his creative, authoritative, powerful hand and said, I've got you. I'll bring you out. Because he would already said earlier that not with not with a strong hand will you be brought out, but I will reach down my hand and bring you out. See, God's deliverance is based on his authority and power. Someone who has no power cannot rescue, cannot deliver. Because God is powerful, he reaches down, and He, by a strong hand, he brings them out. God overcame and subverted the opposition. Think about the story of Exodus. God doesn't just kill people. He uses everything against them. You see, the Nile was sustaining Egypt. God turns it into a weapon against Egypt. Everything is turned against them. Pharaoh himself resisting God is made into a weapon of God. God is using Egypt against itself. God gives Egypt a special place for its own slaves so that Egypt willingly gives up silver and gold to the Israelites. Why? Why would they give up all of their possessions to people that they wanted to make slaves? Because God is powerful. God doesn't just destroy. He shows his power in a way that subverts the evil that he wants. Look at the cross. The devil wanted to kill Jesus, and he does. But in that act, God defeats him. Death consumes Christ, and in that consuming, Christ defeats death. That's a strong hand. That's not just saying, oh, he won, barely. He's saying he didn't just win, he used the other guy against himself. He took all of, God God said, I'll use all of my strength, but actually I'll use some of your strength too. I'll take your strength from you and use it against you. That's what God does here in this passage, and that's what God wants the children of Israel to remember. That's why he says it four times in this passage. By a strong hand I brought you out out of Egypt. In case you wondered how it happened, God reached down with his hand and did it but he did it by grace. There's no reason that this group of people should have been saved. You see, we're looking backwards and we know Israel and everyone knows about Israel and Abraham and David. But at this point, there's no, they're nobody. They're slaves. That's all they've ever been. Why this group of people out of all the groups of people did God save? They don't turn out to be very good people. Jump ahead in the story, they all die in the wilderness. Everyone he brought out, they died. That's how bad they were. So why does he save them? He says, and it shall be when the Lord brings you out of the land and into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, this great place he's going to give you, which he swore to your fathers to give to you. He didn't even swear it to these people. He said, I'm not even going to do it for you. I'm going to do it for some old promise that I gave to somebody else. You have done nothing to receive anything from me. He said, I'm doing it because I made a promise, not to you, but to your great-great-great-great-grandfather hundreds of years ago. God's election of Israel and of us is not based on any merit of our own. God doesn't care how good or bad you are. That's not why he chooses. He didn't choose Israel here to bring them out because of anything they had done or not done. And so when God chooses us, when God elects us, we are predestined, the Bible says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It wasn't because he looked at us and said, that's a good person, I want them in my family. No. No merit of our own had any bearing on why God chose us. For by grace are you saved. Not by merit, not by character not by works, for by grace, which means God says it's going to be all me and none of you. And this passage is showing us that. He said, I'm going to bring you out because I made a promise. In case you thought it was because of you. No, it's because I made a promise. And how does he bring them out? How does God deliver? By substitute. You see, because God owns everything and because God is just, God says that bad things should be destroyed. So how does he save? By substituting. And it came to pass in verse 15, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, when, when Pharaoh resisted God, God killed all the firstborn. That's justice, isn't it? You try to steal from God, God takes it by force. That's what Pharaoh was trying to do. He's trying to steal from God. He's trying to take what was God's, and God took it by force both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of beast. But he didn't do it to the Israelites. He kills the Egyptians, but he doesn't kill the Israelites. Why? God owned the Israelites too. And Israel was not a great people. They sinned too. But God didn't kill them. And that's what we have here in verse 13. Or verse 12, "That you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the wound. That is, every firstborn that comes from the animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. What's he talking about? And all the firstborn of the man among your sons you shall redeem. What's the parallel? And if you don't redeem it, I'll break its neck. Is that harsh? No. The pad, the, he's not saying I'm going to. He's saying you must redeem them or like the donkey... You'll break their neck. See, he didn't kill the firstborn of Israel. He did kill the Egyptians. Why? Why did he make that distinction? Because somebody else was killed for them. So the the story here is God saying, remember what happened. Every year for the rest of your nation, remember what God did here. And every time you have a donkey that you want to keep for work, you've got to kill something else in this place. And if you don't kill something else in this place, then you've got to break its neck. And every time you have a son that's, that I'm not going to kill, you need to kill something else in this place. And if you don't kill something else in this place, then it's going to die. So God says, if you want to keep what's mine, you've got to have a substitute. Because of God's ownership, the Israelites need a total substitute for what they had. They didn't give up half a donkey. They didn't give up half, half a lamb. God says, give me a whole substitute or I'll take the whole person. We are the same way. God owns all of us. And God's going to take all of us. God's going to kill all of us unless there's a complete substitute made for us. So the lamb here says, redeem with a lamb. God's preparing these people for what's going to happen in the future, which has already happened for us. Christ came as the Passover lamb and Christ was killed for us. The total substitute is Christ. You see, the payment here, so it shall be when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, "What is this?" That's what we're asking it. What does this mean? You shall say, "By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out." And He gives the explanation for the redeeming. Pharaoh was stubborn, and I killed the the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beast. Therefore, there. Why is it therefore? He says, "I killed the ones in Egypt, but I didn't kill you. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all males that opened the womb. I killed them." He kills the firstborn. You see what's happening? God says, I spared them back then, but I still want them So kill them So I kill the firstborn, but all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. And it shall be a sign to you. shall teach you something. Your children, and by virtue of firstborn, the whole family, either gets killed or gets substituted. And Christ is that substitute. And this is what shaped Israel. And this is what shapes us. Christ is that payment. 1 Timothy says, For there is one God, one creator, one ruler, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And how does he mediate? Who gave himself a ransom for all, who gave himself as a price who said, you don't have to kill your firstborn, I'll be killed. So the firstborn son of God, the ultimate man, God himself in flesh, says you can kill me instead so that all your firstborn can go, so that all your family can live, kill me. And so the ransom was paid. But it's not by force. You can still choose not to accept it. God doesn't force you to make a substitute. You can do it the old-fashioned way. And the old-fashioned way is you take responsibility for yourself. that what we teach people. Take responsibility for yourself. God owns you. Now man up. Great. God will let you do that. If you're sitting here right now, God will let you take responsibility for yourself. And here's the payment. Everything you have now and everything you ever could have, including your life. Do you want that? that the payment you want, there's only one option. See, there wasn't two options here. It wasn't, if you have a donkey, you can redeem it, or you can just dedicate it to service. Take the donkey and just dedicate it to the temple. And then you don't have to know it's Redeem it or kill it. Same options offered to you. Redeem yourself with your life or trust Christ to redeem you. So yes, it's a narrow path, very narrow. There's only one way but look at the path. There's one door, but look at the door. It's yes, God is in charge and you have to answer to him, but God gave himself for us so that we wouldn't have to. God is teaching Israel that, and by teaching Israel, he's teaching us. Imagine the animal being killed. Imagine the son being brought to the temple and watching the animal being killed and the father saying, that should have been you. Watch his blood run out. That should have been you. And the son will ask, why wasn't it me? That's God's point. Why wasn't it? Because the lamb was killed. And the question remains, what about us? We haven't killed any lambs for our kids. Christ was killed for us. So when you take the Lord's Supper and your kids ask, what are you doing? You're saying, God should have killed me, but he didn't. And your kids are gonna say, "Well, why didn't he kill you?" And you're gonna say, "Cause Christ died for me." And that's what the next thing's talking about. God owns us, but God delivers us through Christ. But now that He delivers us, what now? This is that third question. So, are we on our own? No, God owns us. Who are we? We're delivered. But here's the other question: How do we change? How do we stop being who we are and be somebody better? God didn't just say, well, you're free. See you later. We understand that if God owns us and God delivered us, now we want to follow God, right? When the rescuer comes and saves you, when he leaves, you're like, I'm going with you. Uh, Where are you headed? I'd like to follow you. That's what they're doing here. He brings them out to do what? To go to the land he has for them. So we have God's call. This is Christianity. God owns us. God does something for us. He dies for us. Now, he calls us. Part of the call is saying, believe that I died for you. That's the first part of the call. But there's more to it than that. There's follow me. So God's call is, first of all, faith, trust, accept ownership, accept that God owns you. Believe that. Accept that you need a complete substitute. And accept that God's way is the best way. Accept that God's plan is the only way. Not just a good way, it's not even a right way, it's the only way. Not just God's plan for salvation in the beginning, which is important, all of God's plan. You see, the Israelites didn't say, well, thanks for bringing us out of Egypt, but we're going to head somewhere else. No, he'll bring them into the land he promised. So we do the same thing. As God's people, like Israel is God's people, we follow him by faith, not knowing where we're going. None of us know where we're going to be in a year from now. But we do know this, that if the Bible says it, that's where we're headed. That's our call. That's God's call to you. You don't need to know where you're going as long as you know it's in the Bible. That's the trust that we have in God. But what's the change? How did God change them from slaves into a nation? He does it by ritual. Now, I've been realizing this ritual aspect because God's been driving it home. Many pastors lump all this together, but I've intentionally divided it up. Have you noticed we've been talking about the Passover a lot, week after week? Why? Because God keeps on talking about it. He spends about... Seven verses on some of the plagues where people are being killed and hail's coming down. He then spends chapter after chapter on this ritual of the Passover. Four times already. This is the fourth time he's talked about it in two chapters. Why? Why didn't he just give it to him the first time? Chapter 12 at the beginning, he said, do this. But then in chapter 12 at the end, he does it again. And a third time. And now in chapter 13, again he says, keep the Passover on this day in this way. We get it. no. Either God made a mistake by putting it in too many times, or we don't get it. See, that's the power of ritual. God is saying to Israel, you need to change. So I'm going to tell you over and over and over again how to change. I'm going to tell you four times how to keep the Passover. And then the Passover itself must be kept over and over and over again. The ritual, the habit, the the pattern must be done over and over again. Why? Because he wanted to shape them. And what did this God-given ritual do? It gathered people around the acts that he had done. It didn't gather them around an idea. When we take the Lord's Supper, when we, when we have baptism, we don't gather around an idea. We gather and remember specific things that happened. So when he says here, make unleavened bread, why? Verse 3, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Every time they were to take the Passover, they were to look back and see the act that God had done. Every time they were to redeem the firstborn, they were to remember the, the night that God killed the Egyptians. You see, it's not a philosophy, it's historical things. So when we take the Lord's Supper, everyone wants to get, our, everyone, religion want to argue about whether Christ is present, whether the. You're missing the point. The point is remember what God has done for us. And so what does that do? It gathers everyone not around their view but around a historic event, which is a great place to gather because it takes your opinion out of it. And so God gathers them around this ritual. Over and over they gather. He says there should be a memorial to you. In verse 16, it should be a sign on your hand and is frontless between your eyes. You shall never forget it. Over and over, it shapes you. It changes you generation after generation. Your son's going to ask you. And here's the key for our church. Rituals invite the next generation to assume the identity Of the old generation. Rituals invite the new generation to assume the identity of the old generation. That's what happens here. He says, your son, in verse 8, and you shall tell your son in that day, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. In verse 14, so it should be when your son, when the next generation asks you, What is this? You shall say, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Now here's something interesting. In Deuteronomy chapter four, when the Israelites are further down the road, the next generation has come. These people died. Moses speaking to the next generation. You know how he talks to them? As if they were in the Passover. As if they were in Egypt. He said, remember when you came out of Egypt. Now those kids would have said, we weren't in Egypt. But Moses says, you were in Egypt. And then he says, and remember, in the future, when you betray God, he'll exile you. But those people wouldn't be exiled. Why was he saying that? Because every generation identifies with the act of God. They don't say, I remember when my dad was saved, when my great-great-grandfather was saved. They say, I remember when I was saved. Now, the act only happens once. Christ dies once for all. But the identity is assumed. How do we raise up a next generation? By telling them to be just like us. And what are we? We're owned by God and we're delivered by God. That's who we are. And that's who we want the next generation to be. If there are young people in this church, when they ask questions, you give them their identity. And that identity is accept that God owns you and accept that God delivers you. And the next generation will be just like the last one. You see the continuity here? That's what God is telling them. That's what he's telling us. That's what the Lord's Supper does. We want the children in here during the Lord's Supper so they can ask what it's about, so we can transfer it to them, and so they can say, I was brought out of Egypt. I was brought out of the house of bondage. This calls for commitment. This is the final call of God. Commitment. What's the role of the Israelites in this passage? It's to accept what God has done, accept that they couldn't do it, that God has already done it, but it's also to participate in it. Participate in the ritual. It wasn't watch the ritual. It wasn't think about it. It was to participate in it. It was active participation. There's no there's going to be no change in your life until you participate in the rituals. What are those rituals? They're the things we do over and over and over again. What are those? What has God told us to do over and over and over again? Read the Word. Sing the Word. Pray the Word. Listen to the preaching of the Word and see the Word in the ordinances. Those are explicit commands in the Bible. You need to actively participate in those. If you want to be changed... You see, an Israelite who wouldn't keep the Passover was cut off. And a Christian who won't participate, you're on the outside. You're out. There's no change for you. Only by remembering what God has done can you be changed. If you don't sing, you won't be changed. If you don't read Scripture, you won't be changed. If you don't listen to the preaching, you'll be the same now as you were last year. You'll be cut off from the grace of God, from the means of grace if you refuse to participate in the Lord's Supper and baptism, you'll never be changed. God has given rituals, explicit, not random, not just whatever we come up with, not man-made traditions, biblical commands. Why? Because that's how God works. He hasn't changed. He gave them rituals. He gives us rituals. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, let every man examine himself. Not examine other people. Not say, well, everyone else is doing it, so I'll do it. Examine yourself. Actively participate in the event. You say, I don't know if I get it. Are you listening? I mean really listening. Because if you're not listening, you'll never get it. Are you singing? Are you seeing? If not, you'll be in Egypt forever. You'll never leave Egypt. But if you listen, if you participate, God will give you his grace. You won't get it for yourself. God will give it to you. Here's Christianity. God owns us, God saves us, and God calls us. What do you do with that? You believe that God owns you. You believe that God will save you. And you believe that you need to respond to that call. Unsaved? If you're here today and you're unsaved, God's calling you before he breaks your neck. And if you're saved, God's saying, you're my people. I can change you if you'll listen, if you'll participate. You see the grace of God? He came to you right now. Right now, when you came here and you weren't ready to listen, and you'd done a bunch of bad stuff this week, God says, okay, I'll still talk to you. I'll still give you the word. I'll still give you people. Just listen. Accept see what God has done for us. That's Christianity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful acts. When you saved the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery, when you brought them out to a new land, and we thank